In the following live session recording, Tony Neal, state missionary with Church Administration and the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, talks about best practices, receipt and protection of church contributions, part two. In this session, you will learn some best practices when receiving and protecting contributions given to the church, ensuring funds received are accounted for and are deposited intact and whole. Part one focuses on contribution receipts, while part two focuses on protection of the church in dealing with contributions. Let's join Tony now. Well, in this section, we're gonna talk about best practices in protecting contributions uh, once that you've gotten in, intact, counted them and, and other things, but also specifically passing those monies out, paying them out, designated funds and other stuff, and keeping some accountability in there so um, uh, I told you it's going to be a little short. I've got another tax update on the parking lot tax that we need to address at the end. Uh, but um, in this one, for accounting for and protecting the contributions, true or false, it's okay for all contributions, ties designated to be maintained in the same operating bank account. What's the consensus? It, it is it is legally okay, but it is probably not best practice. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But uh, best practice is probably to separate because you can't borrow from a designated fund. So the designated fund has to be following the guideline of whatever's in there minus the expenses that you know what was given minus the expenses has to be still intact so uh, you can't have all the all the designated funds the general fund and if you have a slump and the general fund borrows from a designated fund accidentally you've actually misappropriated funds so that's a good reason not to and we'll talk about the reasons again but yeah it's it's, it's one of the trick questions so it's it's okay but it's not the best practice uh, one trustworthy person handling all financial needs is adequate. And, and again, best practice is that it's not, but legally there's no there's no obligation to do it that way. Now you're doing it because you're protecting the asset. And, and you do have a legal a fiduciary responsibility as a church, as a nonprofit to do that, but it's not a requirement that you set up the, the checks and balances that we described in the first class. It's okay to borrow funds for designated funds and pay it back later. Okay, I just told you the answer to that one when we started saying the other, but um, uh, it's never okay to borrow. Even if it's accidental, it is still illegal and a misappropriation of funds. So if you have a designated fund and you've collected $100,000 and no expenses have been there, that designated fund better have a $100,000 balance can't borrow and switch between designated funds oh well when this comes in we'll pay it back it's not an option okay so that is one of the reasons going back to the first one why some people choose no the best practice is to separate it because you don't know at any given time that you would be doing the right thing and writing checks and income that you might mistakenly and and you can be a good a good practitioner and still make the mistake of because of when incomes, when uh, deposits clear versus when the checks go out and other things, you could still make the mistake of having not having enough in there. And again, 
the auditor only looks at did you have that balance that was supposed to be there throughout the time that it was there. So if you if you borrowed it just for one day, you misappropriated funds. Yeah, I don't think many churches have this problem, but it is okay as long as you account for it to transfer funds from general funds to designated funds. If the church but has decided to do it or has a policy that allows for doing it. So sometimes, and, and I don't know if you were, some of you that might have been in Chris's class last night, he talked about having the monthly mortgage out of the designated fund. And in some cases, the churches will say, this much is going to come out of this, and, and people have committed, so we're going to do some out of budget, and they transfer it over into that designated, but they write the check out of the designated because those were monies that people were going to donate straight into that. It just depends on the church. Uh, but the policy needs to be solid enough that you follow through and make sure you're doing everything the, the uh, correct way and that the designated doesn't get used for anything. Yes, the general can get used if it's allowable by your policy. Do you have one of these? I do not. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> um, if. Back in. Okay, Eagle Eye, we need to find the back end here. Oh, good. <laughs> all right, carry on. <laughs> it's all good. So best practices for designated fund receipts have a separate bank account. Now again, it's best practice. It's not a legal obligation. Some people say, well, we keep very tight accounting standards. We keep up with the bank account through uh, the accounting system. We don't write checks until everything's clear or blah, blah, blah. You could do that. It's not illegal, but the best practice would be to have separate accounts so that your designated funds don't accidentally get borrowed from and then you get audited that year and found that you misappropriate funds. Uh, the best practice is to follow the same standard for every receipt of funds. So accounting procedures, depositing, and those funds in a timely manner. Uh, the reason I bring that up is most of the time, I mean, that's, that's just, you do the same thing for any time you do a collection, but sometimes we do building plan, you know, we do a plan to offering thing and they're like, well, wait, and then we're going to put it all in when it all comes in. Somebody else is going to bring a check. No, it's best to go ahead and, and follow the same procedure. Get the receipts in, make the deposit, and make another deposit if it's some coming in at a later time. Okay, don't hold uh, the youth minister collecting for the youth mission trip. He shouldn't hold the checks until he gets all the checks. <laughs> Get them in, send them in, don't lose anything or anything else. Uh, depositing all funds intact. We talked about that at the beginning. We copy all checks included in the deposit, copy of a prepared deposit slip, attaching the counting sheet and the bank endorsed receipt. So, although you're taking a different, excuse me, if you're taking a different account, a uh, different deposit slip to the bank than what you give to the treasurer, the treasurer ought to get a copy of that to see that this is what was sent and brought in with the deposit. So you make a copy of the deposit slip that's going to the bank and give that to the treasurer so they see both. Now, preferably you're taking it, your counting team is taking it and dropping it in the drop box. If you're one of those churches that's big enough and you're doing counting on Monday morning and you're having to, again, I don't want you to have to do it, but if that's what you're having to do, put it in the, in the safe and do it the next day they also would need to bring back the deposit slip that came with that. So they need to they need to 
balance that out what you said you were going to do what you said you did and then what actually cleared ought to all match and ought to be in the records for for keeping up with it um, if a contributor designates a portion of the contribution to a designated fund ensure that the procedures are documented in explaining how to handle this best practice deposit all the general account then transfer the designated fund account either immediately or monthly so in some cases it's easier just to make a deposit into one bank account and then write the check out of the general saying that it never really actually hit the general but you, you you're using the one account because that's where all the money came in on sunday when we make a deposit we do generally don't take it to the bank to draw with two different bags ones for designate and then sometimes people write checks as uh, actually co-mingled where they've got their tithing mm -hmm. and also their designation all on the same check and that's okay so what you would do then is immediately transfer it over to that designated fund after it cleared okay and then oversight accountability monthly review revoke, review all the deposits compare it each Married to the corresponding statements, making sure that everything that was said that was done went there and, and cleared there. Um, so the separate bank accounts, purpose for two separate bank accounts, the general operating and designated, it provides from accidental co-mingling or misappropriation of the funds, as I've already mentioned. Uh, if you've got it all in the same and you start using it one way or the other, you've got the chance of making the issue of using that for something that you shouldn't have used it for in the general and, and vice versa, if they say you can't use general fund monies unless they're appropriated, you, you may not be able to borrow, as uh, Hank, did you suggest that if you could move money? If, if your policy is you can't, then obviously you definitely need to have those two in bank, different bank accounts so you don't misappropriate any of the general fund to something that wasn't to be appropriated for. Uh, it ensures the designated funds are financially supported, so the money's always there. It's supposed to be there. Cash is available, and that's required. That's not, it's not something that you, is, is optional. Oh, well, to make, to make budget, we went ahead and wrote the check to the utility. We'll put it back after next week's offering. That's not optional. It's not, it's not a legal way to do it. Even though you didn't get caught that week, an auditor catches it, you misappropriated funds during that year. Uh, depositing funds, copy all checks included in the deposit, copy a prepared deposit slip, attach all accounting sheet, uh, the bank encoded receipt to the corresponding deposit. It ensures that the documents are available. Uh, if audited, they can go back and make sure that the physical deposit was made. And for future purposes, including internal and external audits, that you've got every all the documentation there to support what's supposed to be there. Uh, it ensures that the native funds are financially supported, like I said in the other one, but uh, it's, it's not something that you can choose to, to well, we're not going to deposit all the money that's supposed to be there for the, for the youth mission trip because never, everybody hadn't paid yet. It needs to be put away. The money's, I've, I've had too many calls, well, the youth minister lost, well, you're going to have to call the parents and tell them, we lost the money or lost your check, you need to write another check. Or, and if you've got multiple avenues, let's say people were sending out letters and raising money, you got to go back to more than just one person and ask for checks. And uh, so, is anybody a youth minister or your kid a youth minister? I'm not trying to pick on youth ministers, okay? No, just understand that. Is well, we'll, we'll, we're ten, we're, take checks. Wait, wait, wait. This is being recorded, so please don't. <laughs> <laughs> please don't name names of the innocent and uh, to protect the, the guilty or whatever. Um, but truthfully, 
the youth minister has a lot of other roles and, and treasurer is not it. So he should not be hanging on to it. He, if he's responsible or she's responsible for keeping up with who has raised their money, they can do that with a spreadsheet and hand over the, the deposit every week or every time they collect. Okay. Um, I mentioned this and the other. We don't have a problem. We don't need to ask questions, and that wouldn't be good for the church. I mean, a lot of people in the church are going to say, you know, why are you asking these things? Why do we need to have a review? Well, you know, why do we need to? I mentioned earlier, I think every church needs an annual review, an external or objective review, not by the people who do the work, by people who don't do the work. And in fact, the, the sister church reviews that I mentioned and set forth are one option. You could even do internal reviews once in a while. So if you're really small, one year you may do an internal review, and the next year you may do an external review with the sister church, and then the third year you pay $2,500 to $5,000 for an external review with a CPA. So I don't think that a small church should pay for an audit every year. I said that earlier, but I just want to say, but I don't think that a small church should absolve itself from having any oversight because the rules change and not every small church is here. And every event I do, uh, I keep up with the number of churches we've, we've touched. And the most I've touched in one year is 1,200. There's 3,600 churches in Georgia. So if they don't show up, I can't help them. But also on the other side of it, if something changes that year, they're probably not getting it. In most cases, if they're not coming to a some conference to get that update, in, in general, unless they're paying significant fee somewhere else for an external group, which I won't be naming, um, you're, you're uh, not getting an update because there's not other places doing this. I actually have other denominations come to some of our conferences, so it's not done uh, widespread. So not trying to talk you into my conference, but the, the fact is, that review, that one church that you, sister church you work with, may have gone, or maybe you went, and you're going to tell them something that could help them. So that it helps to have that outside set of eyes to look over what you've been doing to make sure that you're doing it right, and also tell you about things that may have changed since the last time you had an update. Uh, so you need internal controls for reviewing the work. You need to know the rules for taking care of that money. Uh, and the treasurer's responsibility. I talked to you about the book that we have, and it's, it's available electronically. A couple of people have already emailed me and said they want it. Uh, I don't have the 19 one in print. I only have this one 18 in print, only because it just costs too much. So it is available electronically, and if you want to know how to get it in a bound copy, you can do that. You can probably print it cheaper, but if you want to get it uh, you can put on there. I need to know the website for how to get to that Purchase it ourselves. I think the electronic version free you could go and print it on your printer and uh, Put it in a folder and, and review it if, you, if you're that kind of person now some people would rather have it on Electronic version only because that's all they do is carry around their laptop. So uh, or their pad uh, the, the financial Church financial guidebook it's by the SDA, Stewardship Development Association of Southern Baptist Churches. So um, we contribute. Uh, actually, Keith, who used to be retired last year, actually still is quoted in the book. 
So Keith Hamilton actually wrote something they literally just copied into it. And so they basically gave him uh, credit in it. And other people contribute by just reviewing stuff or making suggestions. And I've sent in my suggestions and made changes, but they don't put everybody's name in it. But we decided a couple of years ago, which was before this that Keith wrote, that we would just make changes. And, and there's, there's a person that's over that, and he doesn't take credit either. So it's kind of the committee, it's a community-based um, the restrictions are permanent. So once you take it in, and I talked about it in both classes, and so I'm not going to hammer on this, but if you take in money for a scholarship fund, it's in the scholarship fund until it can be closed legally. And if you didn't have a way to close it in advance before those dollars came in, then you can't close it without legal assistance. Okay, there's a possible way, but it's, you're going to need to talk to an attorney. Sometimes it's going to cost you. Sometimes they'll say, no, it's been this long. You could call it abandoned, but do this, this, and this. And they'll give you steps to go through. I'm not an attorney, so I can't tell you if it's been long enough to need to do these steps. The reason he's telling you that is that legally, you still need legal. You need legally go to court, quote, unquote. But officially, if it's been abandoned, he can defend it. Because the 501c3 controls the money. Remember when we talked about contribution credits, it's relinquished to the control of the 501c3 or the church. So officially, you still have control of it as the body. But if there's a restriction that you've agreed to or that designation, then you're supposed to follow through with it unless you said in advance that you might not, which would be the statement that we had in the designated funds. If any time in the future the church decides they can vote by the church can close its fund. If that wasn't in there in advance, then you need legal advice, and it may even cost you some court fees just to go back and get it done. Okay, but I, I, I will refer you. I'll help you find somebody, or I'll send you to somebody. And, and some attorneys will do it for free, some won't, and it also is going to depend on what the, the situation is. I mean, if you got the hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollars that you've set up to do something, and it was taken recently, but you need to get that money or repurpose that money immediately. You're going to have to pay some money to get get some stuff done because officially if the account's empty you should be able to close the fund okay. so if you You're go back talking about if the account still has money in it mm -hmm. if you if you have an empty account and it's not got in there a way to, to close the fund in advance Go ahead and rewrite it if you're going to keep it open. Otherwise, count. I, I'm a proponent of the minimal minimalizing designated funds. Uh, it, I, I feel like it, it splinters the giving for the budget, the general budget. It, it actually creates siloing kind of things for ministries because some of the ministries might even go that route. We'll give it to the, the youth fund. We need more money for this trip. We'll give it to the children. We need more money for BBS or whatever it is. It creates a siloing effect, and we're not the body anymore. We're now separate little min ministries that actually come together just to, to worship for a little while. And to the online giving that we were talking about, we chose not to allow people to give the designated to us the online giving on some general ties. We have a, a, a designated fund that's been there since before I was treasurer there, which I've been there 14 years on in that position. And it was uh, like about $8,000 in fund. And what I understand is just been one individual that contributed to this. And that bottom paragraph, it sounds like that's saying if we can go to this one guy and he wrote write us a letter saying we can release that out of there. Talk to an attorney. Okay, the way I wrote it is that that's what I've heard attorneys tell people, but it's really specific to the situation. Okay. So if their money hasn't come in in several, several years, He's probably going to say that's right. 
Yeah, if he's probably going to say that's right, but I can't. I, I'm a CPA. I'm not an attorney. And if you had to go to court, you're going to be dependent on what you learned. And I've got to tell you, okay, get an attorney just to review to make sure that you're safe. But yes, probably in all likelihood, he's going to say notification or communication to let him know that the church as a body is going to be reviewing this, and we'd like to find a new place to, to utilize it. That it's just sitting, but it's not something we're going to do. I only tell you that because I've heard churches hear it, but I will specifically stay away from the specifics of how long it's got to be or anything else because I, that's not my that's not my profession. So I need to stay out. <laughs> uh, so the church needs to have separation of duty, authorization for check signing versus preparation. So the people doing the record keeping, writing the checks and such, they should not be authorizing the checks. Okay, so uh, in most churches person writing the check sometimes signs the checks. So a lot of our small churches do that. It's not illegal. We're talking about best practice. Remember at the beginning, I always reminded you, I'm talking about best practice. If you want to know what you can leave, legally, one person could do everything. That's not a good practice and it's not good for the person because they, they are temptations put in front. Remember we looked at the fraud triangle and that opportunity becomes great when they're the only ones touching it. And secondly, if they do don't do something uh, wrong, somebody can make a false accusation too. It ruins their reputation. Um, but even a mistake gets amplified because that's the only person doing it. So everybody thinks, oh, they don't know what they're doing, or they're trying to they're trying to steal from the church or something else. A mistake gets amplified because that person's the only one doing it. Um, so authorization needs to take place either pre before the checks are written, if you're gonna have one person doing it and writing the checks, if you do online bill pay or something, then they need to get initialized approval from someone. Is that like a requisition form? A requisition form, or they can give all the invoices and that person reviews them, approves them, that they, these can be paid online or whatever. Uh, a requisition form or whatever, or the person prepares all the checks based on the invoices and then sets them out for the person to come and sign them, have a different separate sign them. That's usually the best practice, but we, we're in the electronic age, and, and you've heard it, and you talk, we talked about online giving and so forth. If you're doing online bill pay, the only other way to do it is do it in advance. Yes, did you have a question? Oh, okay. Oh, okay, <laughs> I thought I saw your hand, and I, I was looking at the In advance, by getting, handing the invoices over to somebody to review, to, and they initial or approve, sign off on, then the person goes back as eligible to bill pay, pay based on his authority or her authority. So it's not the same person that writes the check and pays the check or whatever, or if the same person is paying, this one person approves it in advance. Okay, so credit card. For example, we know that we need five items from Office Depot, and they would total up to $800, which is not a reality, but and I charge it on a credit card and I have the invoices. Is it kind of, see, I'm the financial fiscal assistant and I report to a treasurer. Does she, and say my limit's $300, that I, that I have that before I ask, or would you say that the office connects? It's $300 that I charge on the credit card. I'm going to jump over my questions, really. At what point? 
if you're going to write the check to the credit card company. But I'm okay with the credit oh, So I write the check to the credit card. See, I'm the one that does all the fulfillment, not online. So either she approves it that you can write the check or do the online bill pay to the credit card company. Okay. Or you write checks and she comes in and signs them. Okay. So one way or the so other, two people on. approve that payment. Okay. One way or the other, two people. That's obvious now that Okay. You just had to talk to me. I did. <laughs> Uh, reconciliation of the asset or custody, reconciling the bank statement. So after things come through, you still don't know that everything that was written was actually reviewed. And I hate to say that, but that's, I mean, I mentioned it in the other, there are, there, and somebody else said it on Word even or something, you can even create documents or create invoices. Literally, there's, there's websites that help you create invoices. People can create an invoice, make payment, and the, and the bank is not looking at whose signature is on that. I'm sorry, you may think they do, and you sign signature cards, but there is no way with the level of the stuff that comes through that they're looking at and doing comparisons. That's only if fraud is, is uh, reported that they go back and see, oh yes, you're right, and then they go back and, and try to find the person that committed the fraud. They don't go through and check prior to, just like if you have two signatures, that's your enforcement, not the bank. The bank does not check for two signatures. You can have two lines and they still don't care if there's two signatures. Okay. So, they, they might look at, well, I'm gonna say they might look at all checks that are that high now though. I mean, so truthfully, they're not required to look at those checks. They'll tell you, if we put two line items in it, we're not, we're not responsible for it, that's you. So um, the reality is though that we need people doing these different roles. And, and all three of these functions shouldn't be one person, and it's for their protection and the church's protection. Just like the audit or the review, it's for their protection to learn the new things that have come out. It's also for the church's protection that they know somebody's coming behind and checking up and making sure you're following your policies and procedures and that the person's doing the stuff the right way. Is it not best practice for an okay practice to have two people doing those three things? I, and I'll just give you an example of what we do. We have a, a part-time staff person that's financial secretary, so she, she writes the checks. And then I, as treasurer, sign the checks and typically initial the invoice at the same time. She reconciles and then I check the reconciliation. Correct. That, and best practice would be for at least two or more people. Um, because you're not doing two, you're doing part of two or the three, and she's doing part of two or the three, you're okay. It's a, it's, it's a much better practice to have two people doing that than one. And that's what and the reality is 3,600 churches. I can assure you, over a thousand of them, only one person does everything. I mean, literally, like I talked about in the first class, they're picking up the offer and putting it in a bag and taking it home and counting it and then taking it to the bank. Okay, that's, that is not acceptable. That, it's not illegal, so don't misunderstand. It's not illegal, because if you go back and try to implement something and somebody says, well, there's no legal law that I can't find. Show me where it's in the law. I, I'm going to tell you, that's not a law issue. That's a that's a best practice issue. But it's also for, for protection. The fiduciary responsibility is the only law I can point to. you got a fiduciary responsibility as the leaders of that church to take care of the assets that are reported for that nonprofit. So um, 
just so you know, some things that are best practice though, uh, if you went through accounting standards and stuff, this would be something that would be automatic. It would be assumed that if you did not have good internal control, then you would not pass an audit. So if you went to an audit with have paid an auditor, they would put on there, we cannot issue an opinion because we have failure in the internal controls. Because it's not substantiated. Um, Oversight accountability, monthly comparisons, review the monthly bank statement, the bank secular reconciliation, detailed general ledger, and initial and date when reviewed. Comparing this uh, monthly so that the bank statement deposits equal the posted deposits, and it also equals the posted contributions. So you want to go back and see that the contributions uh, match up with who it said was actually given the contribution. So, when you have those uh, checks, you make copies off or the counting statements. So if you hadn't made check copies, which I I like for churches to destroy them pretty quick. If you've got check number, name, and amount, if those things don't match up with what was in the state in the software, it's, even though it's the total matches up, there's still a problem. And, and I'm, I'm sorry to say, one of the issues with, with the uh, church I had the experience with, the, the, Literally, I told you in the first class, it made me very sad that the uh, treasurer, I mean, the finance secretary and the pastor were involved in fraud. And this was one of the things, just one of the things that tipped people off to start looking down other avenues. Uh, their contribution statement didn't match up with the checks that had been coming in for them. So their contribution statement was significantly higher they were taking credit on things that they did not give. Um, now, they were they were scanning the checks and doing things, but they weren't following through and checking up on this. So nobody knew that what she was posting, all the cash was going to his or hers and different things like that. Things that weren't assignable were going to their accounts. I just want to clarify when you talk about contributions. Are you talking about reconciling, adding up the contribution on the letters and how much is on those envelopes to what you're depositing? No, I'm talking about, okay, the documentation that the accounting team gives you that has check number, name, and amount, or envelope, name, and amount because you would say those things. You should, they, the accounting team should give you that whole that list. That list should match up what's in the system with who gave that. So occasionally you should check up with, hey, we go down the list and if we put the names in the same order, the amounts are the same. And if we're not doing that list, we should be doing that list. How are you getting it over to put into the- We the secretary the envelopes. Your church secretary handles all the property statements. Okay, but the checks that y'all write up, right? The accounting team writes up the checks. We don't write the individual. So we're we're taking in the personal checks. Mm -hmm. Okay, the checks are separated from the envelopes, and then they just count the money that the checks total up to. They don't record what checks we get. Okay, you see it. <laughs> How are you giving credit to people? We give the offering envelopes. So you're making everybody that wants to get a credit have to do an envelope. Well, the, the, the 
we, we do make sure that the, what's in the envelope matches what's written on the envelope. And the ones that come without an envelope, then we write down that person's name. Thank you. That that okay, so that with the that's that's what I'm saying is that all if it's if it's you should have a list of checks that were not in envelopes and then the envelopes you should have copies of or have there and you would have to go and match yeah you'd have to do that if you're not going to write them then you're going to have to do that what i would prefer you did is if you're going to document it anyway taking it out of the envelope and counting it you might as well put it down who gets credit then it makes it real easy for the treasurer to go in and put it in the system who got what credits instead of looking through this one this envelope, this envelope. The counters, it's just a little bit extra for you. You're writing the amount anyway, just to write the other things down. Can you No, no, the only reason you copy checks is if the counters were not documenting who gave it. They were just documenting the total number of checks and amount and the total number of cash and amount. If, they, if they're doing all that, then you've got to go back and see the checks so you can give credit to who gets credit and then see the envelopes. And that just makes a lot of extra work. I mean, the counting team could write it all down and you could even have every week have the regular givers name in there where all they had to do is populate the check number and amount and then that one document then gives you the and that document then matches to what the counter said it did yes okay right but each month or so somebody ought to be following up to make sure what's being booked is staying up with what's in there so that you're not falling behind, but also so you're not having somebody take credit for giving that they didn't have documented the original. And that, that's what happened on this, this one example. There's other examples that would go the other way where people were writing checks to take the cash and then taking credit for it because they wrote a check because there's nobody else is behind them doing the counting. So they're doing everything. So they're saying, oh, I'll write a check for this $160 and then it all of a sudden it shows up on their contribution statement. So you need to make sure you're following through. If one doesn't match, then you need to research and explain why. We use Servant Keeper or Contribution Manager. I don't know much about all the software. It's fairly new to this whole thing, but I mean, it makes it. It's, it's we use Servant Keeper for posting that, but we use Power Church for, for financial. But there's not the human reporting of those coming in as the money's counted. We, we're not doing that comparison step. Well, the secretary's reporting all that in the envelope. But anybody, and we've laid that stack of envelopes on her desk, anybody can walk in and add to it. Well, I mean, I mean the, the best case would be to have the counting team go ahead and do it up front. That way, you know, now, if she does it on the next day, it would be with the copies of the checks and she could do the summary or whatever. That's y'all's call, but the best practice is to get it all documented. We like doing best practice. Yeah, get it all documented so you don't have to worry about the secondary person mishandling it, losing it, or mm -hmm. somebody tampering with it before they get it in their hands. Do you recommend like the church secretary being one of the accounting team? 
The financial secretary and the treasurer should, and that, and that was in the first place, but they should never be handling the money that comes in. They should only be, if they're writing checks or signing checks or reconciling, they should be totally absolved of seeing. I'm talking about the church secretary, Okay, but she doesn't, so she doesn't have anything to do with writing checks, signing checks, or anything else. So if she has no back end, she, if she's a member, she could be on the county team, but she wouldn't be by herself. It's a two-person or more team. Okay, designated funds always have to match. Okay, what's came in and what goes out, you need to make sure those match. And then general accounts, sometimes it's not gonna match because you're gonna get refunds or reimbursements. So you'll have some income and it won't match what the original contributions are because you also got some income from other places. So just, just it saves you some time if you say, oh, this doesn't match. Tony said I've got to investigate. First place you need to investigate is that there's a reimbursement or a refund that came back in. Okay. The finance committee and treasurer's responsibility monthly. They, I mean, you got to stay on it. Bank statement reconciliation, bank statement review, and then monthly review of contributions. Make sure you do those things. Uh, it's not that much. A lot of times if you because we've gone to online bill pay and other stuff, it's a matter of taking two pieces of paper and looking at the in, you know the invoice and checking them all off and you're done. Or you can even do it as an online thing if you have the software that allows you to do that where you can verify it and put the invoice numbers and other stuff. Um, so I talked about earlier, what should the church do? And, and I'll, in this one too, I'm gonna to mention separate duties. Making sure that anytime somebody's on the front end, they're not on the back end, or somebody that's on the back end doesn't come in and participate on the front end. They shouldn't be counting the money. Uh, having clear organizational structure, who's, who's responsible for it, how's it gonna go forward. Uh, documenting, uh, well, enlisting qualified people, I mentioned that um, to say that some people don't get training, they need training. Sometimes they don't know how to use software, sometimes they don't know how to do accounting. And so if they need the kind of training or if they're capable of doing that, Sometimes people just don't have the, that's not, I've got a pastor and he called me and I said, well, you know, he was asking me, well, things aren't matching up in, in the church conference. Well, I said, well, it's, look at it this way. You should just be able to look at the bank account, just like it's you, if you went through the bank statement at home when you're checking off the checks you wrote. And he, he just got real silent. I said, okay, do you balance your check? <laughs> he said, no, my wife does. Some people are just not gifted that way. I mean, that's just not there. So don't have people that are not qualified or not gifted that way to do that. You need to document your procedures and then monitor the transactions, having reviews and so forth, and then keeping up your guard. Um, I'm not through yet. Uh, we don't want to believe that somebody would do something wrong to the, to the church's money, but we also have to understand that people will. Uh, we talked about the fraud cycle earlier and how uh, sometimes people do things uh, out of need or they rationalize or whatever or you know there's a pressure in their life but the only thing we can change is that opportunity and that opportunity is a temptation well by having these checks and balances with other people doing things in different places it reduces the chance that they would get away with it and if somebody doesn't think they're going to get away with it, they're going to take less chance. So they're not going to do it. Uh, even though the pressure may be mounting, they need the money, uh, 
know, I would encourage you, if you know people are constantly somebody that's always needing money, um, they come and ask for help with the benevolence every every year. They're probably not the person you want to sign up for the treasurer because they've got financial issues at home. The pressure's already there. So you want to screen the people a little bit. But um, you, the treasurer or the or the rationalization. If somebody if somebody thinks, well, I've done this for free forever, nobody appreciates me. They can rationalize in their mind, this should get twenty dollars an hour, and it's taking me so much, you know, so on and so forth. Don't leave the opportunity because then all, eat all these other things, uh, that's a crazy idea. You can't do it. Somebody that's thinking crazy thoughts, that, that logic comes in, oh, I'd get caught. If you think you're going to get caught, most people won't try. So uh, we can't put that temptation out in front of them. Uh, in this book, though, when you get it, it's going to have some suggestions about separation of duties and having policies and stuff. So uh, counting the money. We talked about counting it, taking it to the bank on Sunday, handling the money as it comes in. Other days is something that we didn't really talk about. The treasurer or the financial secretary, again, still should not touch money as it comes in. The, the practice should be, if, if, if this is not your practice, your secretary or somebody else should open the mail. If there's a check in there, somebody's assigned to deposit it, not the treasurer or the secretary, financial secretary. Somebody that writes checks should not be doing a deposit ever. They would then copy it, make a copy of the deposit slip, and give it to that treasurer. Because sometimes people mail in contributions, or your practice may be, we put those in the in the safe and wait for Sunday. Though I don't like it, it's not the best practice. You put it in the safe and you give it, and then the, the deacon or the head usher or whatever that gets the money and other stuff goes and checks the safe for monies that came in during the week. I know it's. Well, I know it's the bank account. I know it. It can easily be said. I'm just trying to help the church. But if you if you fudge on a policy or a practice, that just shows people that it's okay to do it in other places. And then it just becomes a a, a snowball effect. It just gets bigger and bigger. And oh, well, that's not that big a deal. I I do the right thing. Well, maybe the next person does. And everybody says, well, she used to do this. Oh, okay, I'll start doing this. Oh, look, nobody's looking. Okay, you see what I'm saying? So if we start the practice, we may, may be trustworthy enough, but if we show other people that that practice is okay, they may okay it with the next person who may not be able to withstand the temptation. Um, handling the cash receipts, you should get you should get a receipt book at the church. If somebody brings in cash and pays back something or pays for something, you ought to get a receipt to go with it so that they know how to book it for the treasurer, okay? Uh, check writing, it's up to y'all to decide how you want to go in that route, but it should, whoever writes it should sign it, or if you're doing online, whoever does the online should not be the approver of it. So uh, you need a policy there. You need a policy for building use, and the reason I say that, some churches don't charge anything. If you're not gonna charge anything, you need to be careful. You might not wanna charge anybody external as well okay we've got the issue of well if we're not going to charge people for using it remember we talked about benevolence the country club mentality same thing if they get free use of the building because they're members and givers somebody could come in and say wait a minute i should get free use because you let these people use it free and if you don't so you need a policy for more reasons than just the, the 
the fear of somebody saying they should get to use it free, blah, 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 and having the, the whole thing about being um, uh, discriminated against. You got the other side of the discriminating against. They, you may get forced into doing things you don't want to allow in your church. So if you let people do, uh, I don't even know how to say, is it bunko, whatever, if they do things at their church that seem like games of chance, somebody else can come say they should get to do games of chance. If you do let people do fundraisers in your church, somebody can say, well, wait a minute, you let them raise money in your church. I would suggest your policy be that we only allow use of the church for, for things that meet the mission and purpose of the church. It can be fairly vague. You have an application process. Don't advertise a fee. The fee will be based on what the committee sees your use requested. So there might be a fee because we'd have to clean up five rooms bigger than somebody that just wanted to use the Family Life Center and shoe baskets. So you might say, okay, well, it's just electricity, so we're only going to charge 25 bucks. Somebody else might have 150 because it's a wedding and they want to use a sanctuary. The, the, um, I say the Family Life Center, the fellowship, uh, hall. fellowship hall, and then they got rooms that are wanting the, the bride to dress in. The groom, you got to clean it up again before before Sunday worship. So you got special cleaning and other things that come into play. So there might be an extra charge. You might have to set up your orchestra or not, or music or bands or whatever. You might have to take that all down and bring it back up. You might have to pay somebody to come in. You're going to add that to their fee. So you don't want to advertise. Members don't pay anything. Non-members pay. Don't do that at all. Okay. But have a policy that also spells into it a way to make sure you're not hosting something you don't want to host. Don't say what we're not going to host. Say we're going to only host things that meet the mission and purpose of the church. Okay. Then it's up to that person to tell you why what they're doing. So you have in the section, in the application, how does this meet the mission and purpose of our church? They don't go to your church, they're gonna have a hard time figuring that out, aren't they? And that committee can then say, no, it's denied because it doesn't meet the mission and purpose of our church. Uh, policies and procedures for budget oversight. Some churches, last night he talked about that, some churches have zero-based budgeting, they send it out, and then they don't even literally vote on the budget the budget's communicated. So the elders or the leader, staff leadership or whatever. Some churches have conference every month and they have to present the, the budget in November or December for the next year or, and, and while we're there, let me just get on, get on that soapbox. Um, churches used to use fiscal calendars. There is no reason you have to stick with a fiscal calendar. The calendar year matches up with the payroll. It will make life much simpler for your treasurer or your financial secretary if your payroll year and your budget year are the same. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm not telling you you have to do it because that's not the case at all. But I am telling you that it might be something to consider because it will reduce the, uh, the difficulty of managing mid-year or mid-year, I say not even mid-year, it's sort of into the year raises, end of the year raises that happen during a year. So you've got all those issues that go on. Then you got the payroll issues of if he submitted a new housing allowance for this new budget year, you got two different housing allowance things to back into for the year. There's all those kind of things. And so I would encourage you that if you have the opportunity to present that as, a, as something that would be a good practice, that there's really no reason that the calendar year is a problem 
just because we do Sunday school promotion in September doesn't mean we have to have a physical calendar. So um, we talked about purchasing policies and or signing checks, uh, following up with designated monies. Each designated fund has to be managed by a group. So they are answerable to the church. The financials are reported to the church. You, you had how much came in or how much the previous balance was in this designated fund. Here's how much came in. Here's how much was expended. And here's the ending balance. That designated fund's got to maintain that balance. So we got that part. But who gets to say and approve what the expenses are? It needs to be a team. Uh, I talked about it yesterday. Uh, the pastoral uh Discretion, pastor discretionary funds are not legal. That's taxable income to the pastor. It's not, you can't legally say, oh, the pastor can just give out money to help people when he wants to. You gotta have a group, three or more, have to make a decision for expenditures. The same thing with the designated, other designated funds. Okay, so you wanna have a group that's assigned to that. So if, the, if it's a building and grounds or a building fund, is there a committee just for the new building or is there a committee that is this assigned to the building and grounds? Is a love offerings have to go through the finance committee? Does the finance committee approve those or does it go before the deacons? But there needs to be a committee that oversees or defines when you can take up or if it's something that's open all the time, they decide how the expenditure is expended as well. Uh, you need to have some plans that you will receive gifts that are not cash. I didn't yesterday go over those. I, I alluded to some. There's ways to give contribution write letters for things like a car or stock or other stuff but you don't value it you're not in the business of valuing uh, property or stock you give them a letter stating what they gave okay depending on the value there may be some other forms they have to do and they may bring in an 8282 or an 8283 and have you sign off that you received this of this value but they have to also have a signature of that value either valued by the stockbroker or valued by somebody that appraised it that's objective, not themselves. So they, it's their responsibility, not yours. Your letter only states what they gave, when they gave it, and no goods or services were received in return. And if it's something brand new, you put new, if it's something in excellent condition, you put excellent, but you're not gonna start going into anything else. If there's, if it's a car, you do mileage, the van and mileage. Yes, sir. I mean, I found something interesting the other day. I was looking for something else, and I, I went into a safe that we keep down in the basement in the furnace room. And I found, and I verified all the while now, we have 23 cemetery lots that have been donated to the church for, you know, people didn't want them anymore. And, We'll get a little tax credit, I guess. I don't know what to do. Right. But I've verified them, and they're all our name. We, a lot of them we have to be. Some of them we don't, but I don't know what to do. <laughs> but, the, the other side of that is you need to make sure what they turn in is usable. You don't just give somebody a letter saying that they donated something and let them, because if the clothes aren't usable, you're doing a yard sale and the clothes are nanny, nasty, right? You don't give them a letter saying, you know, so many, uh, same thing with a car. If it's, a, if it's not running, you need to say that it's not running. Okay, were you gonna ask something or were you asking him something? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But cemetery plots usually are usable. But listen, I had a church the other day, the guy wanted to donate three point something acres. It was adjoining their church. 
so he could get it written off. That land's not buildable or usable. And I said, if you're not using it and it's plotted out, your county can start charging you real estate tax because you're not using it for ministry. And if you can't build on it, why would you want it? You can't sell it because nobody can build on it. So I would advise you that, to bring that before the committee before you accept the transfer of that property and receive it. Yeah, or something. Yeah, check and see if you're on your burial plots. If somebody's already buried there or something that well, you don't have to deed. <laughs> one of the ones that I, I went to the cemetery and checked on, and it was three lots. And I saw a, a thing where a son had, had been buried. Well, I asked about that, and they showed me the record where he had been exhumed from the grave and carried somewhere else. Moved to Hawaii. So it, it, is empty. <laughs> it was possible though. That it could have been at one point he was there. <laughs> so uh, let me get through with this and I'll talk about the parking lot tax. Uh, policies and procedures for bonding. If you have people handling money, you need to talk to your insurance company and bond those people. Uh, I'm not saying for millions of dollars because if your regular offering is, let's just say, $3,000 a week. And I'm just saying that just so to, to get an easy number. Well, you really don't need to go any further than, you know, 12 weeks out. So $36,000 would be enough to bond for the people in there. Because if it borrow, if, if somebody steals for that long, it's likely eventually that they're going to either think they're going to get caught or they might get caught and they're going to, they're going to stop or move on. Now, Again, this person that wrote the checks and or didn't write the checks to themselves but didn't send it to the IRS on withholding, that was $280,000. So I might be wrong, but you're going to pay a lot once you get over $50,000 or $100,000 on bonding each person because it's the number of people and how, how much that determines your premium. Where does the balance become? When would you, when would, when would it pay off to have it and not have it? So you're going to have to decide your risk factor. But I think, you know, 12 weeks of, of offering would be uh, a gracious plenty, a quarter would be a gracious plenty for you to set aside and at least do that much as, as insurance bond your, your money handlers. Uh, petty cash, I don't advise petty cash. I mean, people can go and pay for something and get reimbursed in a check. Uh, but if you decide you want to do that, you can have uh, petty cash procedures and things. Uh, petty cash, you only pay out something when you have a receipt for it, or if you give petty cash, they come back with the receipt and the rest of the money. So you're going to have a, I would just run a spreadsheet of it unless your software is set up for that. I would just run a spreadsheet of it and then when it clears or goes through, do a, a journal entry for the, the expenses that have come through. Keep that for years. Uh, well, it, once you do the journal entry and other stuff, you, you've actually put it in your record. You keep the records infinitely of how you expended it. Now, the receipts themselves, you only keep those for seven or seven or, seven or ten. Um, let me be sure. I don't, I, bank statements and cancel check. Invoices and receipts seven to ten years. We have something on our website actually that you it's actually in this book too, but on our website there is a document that tells you how long to keep records. 
gabaptist.org, but also that guide, the financial guidebook. So if if uh, you want to look at that and uh, you have questions, I think everything's there. But if we miss anything, you're welcome to email us and ask. Uh, doesn't mean I'll have the answer off the top of my head, but I'll find the answer for you. Or in some cases, we don't have it on there because it's not something uh, that you have to keep. So, but most things you do have to keep. I mean, even your minutes to your conference, you got to keep those forever. So there's a lot of reasons why you want to go through that list and make sure you don't lose anything. I'm trying to find the parking lot. I have it on there, but I think it's in this book. I know it's in the 19. Is there any questions on this so far? What is the bonding? Uh, hey, I remember they asked me that in the interview, are you bondable? Well, it's just making sure that you don't have, they're they're verifying that you're reliable and they're insuring you if you if you did something wrong or made a mistake. So that insurance would, it would, would be, go through like Brotherhood Mutual? Or yeah, Brotherhood or somebody with that as an add-on. Yeah. No, you need to talk to them. It's, bonding's a unique thing. A lot of people, oh, you shouldn't bond. I'm more, uh, well, like an E&O thing for like errors and emissions. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's supposed to cover you for for everything. If there's a mistake, if you lose it, or or if you steal it. <laughs> so better not steal it, but you know, it does it does help the church. If somebody tries to make off with money, it gives them some of that money back in case something happens. The 2017 tax cut, and I know you can't read this, so I mean, it's, I know it's in the 19 book because that's where I copied this from off the electronic version. But essentially, it says that if a nonprofit organization is, uh, has a qualified taxable fringe benefit, then they have to include it. And that would be parking on the nonprofit's property for their ministers. So if you have reserved parking where they've got a sign up that says pastor parking, music minister parking, or anything like that you're supposed to turn in and pay taxes or it's a taxable fringe benefit, but officially they say you probably as an employer should pay that. Uh, additional interim guidance was given. Now, the good news is churches may not be burdened with this tax if they meet both the following. The church does not reserve any parking places, which I just mentioned, and a majority or 50% of the parking areas are general public, okay, not, not employee. I tell churches, take the first one, it's the most conservative, just take down the sign. Everybody can know that that was the pastor's parking. You can even leave the, 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 the green stick up that was holding it up so that everybody remembers who was the pastor's parking. I, I Generally, wherever I go at a church and, and I'm a visitor and they invite me to come speak or something, I still park at the end of the park, well not the end, but I park far enough out that I'm not even using their visitor parking because I'm there sort of as an extension of them as a, a quasi member at that point. And I don't want a visitor ever turned away because of me being in or thinking that they're turned, you know, they do, well, there's no parking and give up and go to another church or go somewhere else or not go at all. But anyway, you have to uh, calculate that and do a 990T as if, as if you, just as you had a cell tower on your building, on, on your property. Any of those kind of things that would cause you to have to pay income tax, which churches don't usually have to file a 990, on this, you would, as a nonprofit, have to pay tax if you had that kind of. So you have to figure out the value of how much your parking is and other stuff. Now that's the parking tax. Also, if you provide um, for your um, staff the Peach Pass, 
okay? That's taxable. So it's either them or you're going to have to start doing 990Ts. I hate that because a lot of churches have done that for their pastor so he could get into surgeries back and forth through town because surgeries generally are in the morning during rush hour. It's very difficult to get to. And so the ministry either has to leave phenomenally early to make sure he doesn't get kept from being there or he can use the peach pass helps and doesn't guarantee it but it helps to make sure that he gets there in a timely fashion so um, unfortunately peach passes are the same thing it's just like a taxable fringe benefit that they're providing so um, hopefully you don't have those things going on in your church but I did want to mention them because I was trying to add to each of these sections some sort of tax quote unquote update so somebody said did anything change I can always say well there was the tax update in each of these but truthfully uh, internal controls and protections of the money that's always been there sometimes we didn't do it I mean I, I literally the church I mentioned I was there at a conference when somebody brought up we need counting team we need two people counting and I heard the, the voices in the conference I was like 18 or 19 years old when I and I was just starting to take accounting classes in college and I'm sitting there going you know what is it where's this going where's this going and this one person stands up who later I find out was probably the biggest giver in the church I don't want everybody in the church seeing what I give or knowing what everybody gives and that was the end of the discussion I should have known that was the biggest giver in the church but I, I mean that was the end of the discussion that didn't, we didn't go any further he had who he wanted being able to know and that was the end of it now that was see that was in 87 so that was a long time ago, okay, way back in the 80s, okay? Um, for, for you millennials in the back, uh, <laughs> I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Uh, you weren't born yet though, were you? You weren't born yet though, were you? I wasn't. So you know what I'm saying is that that was, things have changed, times have changed, and people have recognized that by not having accountability, things have happened in the church. And I don't want to. I don't even want to compare it on, on the same uh, horizon. But it's it's the same thing with accountability. That, and I, I, again, I hesitate to say it, but the priests and the abuse. There was no accountability, so they were getting away with it because they were watching out for each other or doing it, taking care of somebody or promoting them or moving them along in the same breath. If nobody's doing anything about accountability on the money. We, they just move along and shift over and go somewhere else to do it. We've got to start taking care of that and, and reporting it. Because if churches find out about it, the very first thing I, I, I tell them is you need to report it. You need to get a police report started. And I, invariably, when I send them to these people, Kimberly tells me, I don't know one church that's already filed a police report when you told them to do it before you sent them to me. Most of the time, they do not want to do it. So... If you want to know the truth, the lady that, well, if you, not, it's not the truth. If you want to know how this happens and how I know that they go somewhere else, the lady that did it at that church that Kimberly called the first time, when she started, she decided that was her calling is to start fraud exams and things, take it certified in fraud exam. The lady that did it had already done it, and a pastor told her she couldn't work on the op hour, she could only work when he was there. What did that change? He was still wasn't checking her behind her in the books, but he had already called her. So, uh, you know, she did it in the same church just because they didn't do anything about it. 
uh, and, and it happens like that where they go from this church to that church. It happened over in Polk Harrelson, and that lady that did it left that church because the church ran her off, basically caught her. They didn't do anything about it. She went to the next county over and did it, whatever, Carroll County or something else. So, I mean, this that happens. We've got to help each other. That's the, and somebody asked, do you have a database? Most of the time, they won't even tell me what church they're from. Some churches are so embarrassed or whatever it is. We've got to get over that because that's the only way we can, just like we can't stop child predators unless we report them. We can't stop these people from stealing from the churches because they'll just go and steal from another church. Yes, sir. When I went through your new treasures training, we had a church there that uh, leased the parking lot to the movie industry said that might create some tax liability for the church. Is that still the case under all of this? Temporarily renting your facility or your parking lot for somebody if under a certain number of days, you're okay. But if you, if somebody came in and, and let's say the movie industry came in and said, we're going to be filming across the street, a TV series is going to be ongoing. Yes, you would have to do taxes. So. It's kind of like the cell tower. You're earning income on something that's not related to the church. I wasn't going to I was going to say the question, I'm sorry, because just when you mentioned about the signs in the parking lot, uh, you know, as far as like, you know, indicating that, you know, seniors sit beside the seniors' uh, parking area. Oh, that's fine. It's fine to pick a, a senior parking. It's more about the staff well you have to figure the value of the property the value of parking in the area there's a there's a there's formulas there's some there's some guidance the irs notice here it gave some guidance on how to calculate it and i purposely did copy that part but i think it's in this book but if it's not um look up the IRS, which is, this is straight out of the book, so it'll look up that notice and it should give you some guidance if you decide you're going to have to pay the tax. It's based on the size of the parking lot, the, the square feet, how much is for, reserved for employees, and how much are parking spaces in the area. Because you got to, you know, if, if you're in downtown Atlanta and it costs $20 a day to park, you're providing a pretty significant value to your pastor. So mainly, yeah, it's only employees. Any others? Well, thank you for being here. Let's pray, and then if, if you have questions you didn't want everybody to hear, I'll be here for a long time. You can ask. Dear Lord, thank you for those who have uh, shown up today. They've given up their time. They've given up their uh, freedoms to do something to be a uh, blessing and to further your kingdom protection of the asset, uh, being good stewards of the money, and helping the church uh, take responsibility for uh, taking care of the money that are for your kingdom. Dear Lord, I thank you for these churches, and I pray for revival in our state, in our cities, in our churches, and for our nation, uh, in the world, because we have a lost world. Lord, it just seems like it keeps closing in on us here in our state, and I just pray that you'll start a fire. Thank you, Jesus, for the salvation you provide and can provide for all that we're here. Pray in your holy name. Thank you, Thank you Thanks.